Alright, welcome to Behind the DM Screen, November 2016. It's 3DMs talking about their games and helping each other out. Uh, that's all the introduction you get. Sam's up first. Alright, so uh, the last time that I recorded with you, I talked about the first and uh, mentioned the second session of my Numenera game. Yeah, you missed uh, a session or two, right? I, I missed a, a session or two, yeah. and uh, Or I missed a, a recording or two. And so now we've had two more sessions of the game, and uh, boy, the characters are really in it deep. So I'll give a brief overview, and then I'll talk about some of the issues that I'm having uh, with the system, which really is just issues with me. But uh, so you'll understand what I mean. Um, so basically, uh, it's this big mystery. The PCs went to a, a different kingdom. They're in the Steadfast. For those of you who know the, the Numenera setting, uh, that's the sort of civilized area. And they go to a different kingdom, and they're trying to help out this this family that has been friendly to one of the PCs' families. And uh, turns out there's uh, some trouble within the family, and uh, people are trying to kill other people, and they're not sure why. And they're slowly learning that the um, the uh, the Amber Papacy or the 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 true organization of truth is is involved in this, and they're the sort of a pseudo religious uh, ideal uh, faction that is really concerned with. Um, with, with with learning about the Numenera and learning about technology and and their their idea is if you study the Numenera and you study the past it will it will improve our future and it's called the Order of Truth and it's it's the major sort of uh, pseudo religious organization um, anyway so the party is figuring out that one of the things that is happening is some people are born with uh, extreme power. And in terms of uh, being able to harness Numenera without realizing it, um, so it's it's almost kind of like a pseudo magical thing. It's it's almost like if you had a wizard in D and D who didn't, and, and nobody else was a wizard and didn't really know what wizards were, but you figured out you were a wizard and you could do things. Kind of like maybe maybe Harry Potter is a better example. Like like with his whole childhood, he doesn't realize he's a wizard, but stuff happens all the time, and he doesn't realize that he's causing it, but weird stuff keeps happening around him. And then it all becomes clear when, you know, when they come and get him and say, oh, by the way, you're a wizard. Now we're going to teach you how to use your power. Okay. So for the uninitiated, can you tell us what the Numenera are besides, so, besides the name of the game? So the, the idea of the setting is uh, it's, it's, you know, there's been nine civilizations. It's a billion years in the future. And, uh, there's all of these civilizations had increasing amount of technological advancement, um, or decreasing, and it's in, in very different uh, levels of technological advancement, I should say. And the current sort of civilization that is there is almost like a, a Dark Ages kind of civilization. It's like a pseudo-medieval, pseudo-Dark Ages kind of, but there's all kinds of technology around, and some people learn how to use it. Um, and a lot of it is mostly like magic, based on that uh, that uh, that quote from, uh, who, who was it, uh, 
was it Isaac Asimov or Ray Bradbury, one of those who said, you know, Clark. Yeah, Arthur C. Clarke. It was Arthur C. Clarke. Yeah, technology that's sufficiently advanced technology is is indistinguishable from magic, right? That's that's the quote. Um, And so that's kind of what's happening. So most people don't know how to use these types of things. Lots of people are scared of it. But there are certain groups of people and and certain types of people who can harness it and utilize it and, and do things with it. And mostly those are the powerful people in the setting and your PCs. And the idea is, I mean, there's a lot of people around that use these little pieces of technology, little bits of ancient technology, and that they're kind of one-shot uses. They're called ciphers. And a lot of people use them for different things. But it's kind of a specialty to be able to actually work with the different technologies and do things without accidentally killing yourself. So um, so that that's kind of the basis of it. So it turns out the family that the PCs are helping seem to be protecting this young child. And there's a few things they start noticing that are really odd about this child. Uh, first, they don't know who the child's mother is, but the, the, the two people who are raising the child are raising the child as their own um, because the child's father is the brother of like the main guy that the PCs are dealing with. But he, nobody will tell them who the mother is, and some people say they don't know. And there's, So there, there's this m- sort of mystery there. But, but then they notice that she starts to age in these really weird – like she'll age a whole lot. And then they'll see her again a few days later, and she'll look like she regressed a couple of years. Mm-hmm. So when I say age a whole lot, I mean like they'll see her one one a couple of days, and she'll be like six years old. And then when they see her a month later, she looks like she's nine um, and, and acts like she's nine. And then they'll see her a few weeks later, and she'll have regressed back to being like seven, you know. Uh, so – that's not such a subtle thing, but because they didn't interact with her very much at first, they didn't really notice it at first. So then they, when they finally realize it, they start sort of paying attention to what she does and what she can do. And she speaks to one of the PCs in the group, the, the one who who has a particular skill with Numenera. And she starts talking to him about all these Numenera terms. And he starts realizing, oh, wait, she knows these things she's saying she's not just repeating words she's actually having a conversation but she's almost um socio i don't want to say she's almost like autistic in a way in that Mm. she takes she answers every question literally and she she can't really have a real conversation with you uh in in a way um but how well she can converse kind of depends on the age that she is at the time. It, it's kind of a weird thing that's happening. And that's kind of part of the setting, too, is that weird stuff is supposed to happen that is unexplainable, that you can't really understand, uh, which is great if you're trying to run like a mystery intrigue-based game, which is what I'm doing. Because the players themselves don't know if that's just sort of one of the weird things about the setting or if it's something they really need to pursue. And so sometimes they pursue things that were really just weird things, but it turns into something really awesome in the game, which is a really great thing about the setting. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they pursue something or don't pursue something that was supposed to be an awesome thing, and they just kind of ignore it. (laughs) And that's kind of the bad thing about the setting because it's like, oh, crap, I really wanted you to explore this because it's really neat. But um, So anyway... Basically, uh, they figure out that the the parents have been taking the the girl to a certain location and and, uh, basically handing her over to the Order of Truth and letting them do experiments on her. Now, they don't know if they're doing experiments, and that's what's making her so knowledgeable. She calls it going to school. 
and she identified a few Numenera machines in one of the PC's Numenera books that said, oh yeah, that's the teacher, and that's the this, and that's the that, and and so they started realizing that either the Order of Truth is doing things to her to make her this way, almost a la Serenity and River, um, or maybe she has this ability as a native ability and the Order of Truth is trying to harness it and utilize it for their own purposes. The party doesn't know which one it is yet. Mm. Um, and they so that that's basically where we're at. They've just kind of, they're just putting the pieces together to figure out and try to figure out who's a good guy, who's a bad guy, or at least who should they trust, who shouldn't they trust, whether the girl is dangerous or whether she even understands what's happening to her and, uh, you know, things like that. So, do, do you know what's going on with her or are you kind of making it up as you go? I have written down what I thought was going to be going on with her, uh-huh. um, but I'm also flexible with it. So if the party comes to another conclusion, I'm perfectly willing to let them think that they discovered that. Okay. Because I think it should be a win for them. When they finally figure out what's going on, it should be like they should know that they figured it out and it's a win without being too difficult, right? Well, because I mean, if they just unless they, they just did, unless they to, have a guess and they didn't figure it out, right? Well, I mean, <laughs> uh, yeah, but I mean, like when I when um, when they get to the point where they have had basically all the clues, whatever they decide is the answer. I'm going to let that be the answer. Mm. And there's a couple of different ways it could go. And I'm I'm when I first was you know conceiving of the whole thing, there was one thing I had in my mind, like yes, I'm going to conceive these clues to match with this idea. But now, you know, since we've played several sessions, there have been different NPCs that have come in and different things that happen based on the the party's actions that I didn't know about when I was conceiving the whole thing. So now there are like two or three different things that could be and people that could that could be behind it and reasons that could be for it. And I will let them mix and match all of those elements to come up with the truth of the matter. And if if what they if what they end up saying, oh, this must be it, let's go after this guy, he's the bad guy, I'm gonna say, yeah, that's you got it. Okay. You know, I mean I'm not gonna tell them they're gonna f- discover that they got it right, but right. you know what I mean? So I'm flexible with it. So I kinda know, but I'm there's there's been enough changes to my initial conception of the of the plot that that I'm I'm trying to be flexible with okay. it. Yeah. So um so that so that it's a lot of fun. It's a really, really fun game. Except I am a sh- shucks. I almost said the S word. <laughs> I am a really bad Numenera GM. And here's why I'm a bad Numenera GM. I am so bad at doing GM intrusions. I okay, run my so so let me so a GM intrusion is so in Numenera the GM never rolls the dice, but sometimes um, the players uh, put themselves in a situation and something might happen that they would just naturally succeed at, and the the GM decides, hey, that's a situation where they normally would succeed very easily. I'm going to make it a little more t- difficult for them by introducing some sort of a narrative issue, a problem, something to make their life difficult but not impossible. And if I do that, I offer them two XP, two experience points. And I tell them what is going to, you know, I'll offer them two experience points. I tell them what happens. And they can either accept that sort of disadvantage or or that sort of complication that I provide for them, uh, or they... Uh, or and, and then they take the two XP and they keep one and give one to another PC, 
or they decline it and they got to give me an XP of their own. Mm. So it's an economy. It's almost like a fate point. The thing about it is, is that I already kind of run my games in a way that is narratively fluid, that the the party can affect what's happening. Like I don't prep a tr- a really extensive railroad so that uh, they have to go down this particular path, and here are the stumbling blocks, and there it is, and they can't really affect anything except for the most basic activities that they do. I kind of run a narratively open game already, and I let the things that they say influence what happens. Like, if if they want to go somewhere totally off, then they go somewhere totally off, and I have things there for them. Well, but it sounds um, it sounds like the intrusion doesn't nece- isn't necessarily intended to get them on the rails. It sounds like it's more right. intended to, to throw in right, the complications. Right. No, it's it's not right. It's not to get them on the rails. It is for complications. But the way that I was thinking of GM intrusions was there a way to bring a little bit of complication into the narrative? And for me, when I was sort of thinking and and sort of prepping everything and doing things, I'm thinking narrative. That's the big idea, but that's not really what it is. So for a couple of sessions now, I haven't really done very many GM intrusions. And there's a couple of problems with that. The the problem is, so GM intrusion is a small thing, but I was thinking of it as a big thing because the thing is that the way XP works is you get four XP and you can spend it on a, some on an improvement. Mm-hmm. And when you do that four times, you have you have this menu of improvements that you can do. And when you do four different improvements, you go up in the in tier. That's like almost equivalent to a level. But sure. instead of waiting until you move all the way up to the next tier to get all of your improvements, you get improvements piecemeal all throughout. Right. So one or two XP, that's actually a lot of XP because right. four of those give you a really big boost to your character. At least so, what so, I can So they're not advancing because you're forgetting to do it. No, 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 because I give them – there's there's two ways to give XP. You give it through GM in, in, Intrusion or you can give it in between sessions, which is what I do anyway. Okay. And the reason that that is suggested is because you also want them to have enough impetus to spend I – mean, it's supposed to be an economy. You want them to spend the XP sometimes to increase the drama of the situation because mm-hmm. there's several ways they can spend the XP once you've given it to them. So the issue is I haven't been creating a situation that makes it – appealing for them to create an economy with their XP mm-hmm. because I'm not giving them very many GM intrusions. Yeah. So that's an issue with me. It's not the game. Can I, it's can I offer a mine. Can I offer a thought? Yeah. Cuz I've run it and this was actually one of my there were two complaints that I have with Numenera. I love Numenera and I've run it a lot, but I've never run a campaign with it with a leveling. But I, I know if I did, uh, I would probably uh, set up a uh, you gain one of those abilities every session. Automatic. No, no. So the 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 issue is not advancement. The players are advancing at a at a good level. Right. But I would not associate the cards that you give out the intrusion cards. Like what you know, I, I was worried that like if the if I made the intrusion cards something that they could use for leveling at all, they would never use them because it's always you know like who wants to re-roll right. when I can, when they can get a new ability. Yeah. So I just well, treated that's, them, that's I treated exactly them like action points in D and D. You know, I, tr- I treated them like, uh, yeah. you know, inspiration. like uh, inspiration. Yeah. And it was essentially like the guy knocks you on your ass, and then you hand them the two experience cards. They hand one to a friend and say, "Yeah, but so and so fell down with me." Or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like the similar problem I have in that I always forget to give inspiration, except maybe yeah. there's even higher stakes because yeah. in Numenera. Yeah, cause... and that, that way it removes the high stakes because. So 
Yeah, here's the thing, though, and here and here's my. I mean, I I appreciate your comments, and I I want to keep them coming, but here, here's why. So I use poker chips, so I have the stack in front of me, sure. and the stack in front of me was supposed to remind me to give them out, <laughs> right? That didn't work. Yeah, uh, I did the same thing with my inspiration weird, chips. It worked with inspiration when I run D and D five e. It works, but anyway, I, so my the issue it was more of a conceptual issue for me that I was treating the XP like it was this really big reward, and so. Right. Right. I, no, I, I want it. the GM intrusion to be a, a big deal yeah. narrative. And it, it doesn't, yeah. It could be the, you know, you just decide you want to pick on a character. Right. <laughs> and it, really, it's really what it is, is you're supposed to give, you're supposed to allow or give the option of, of accepting or refusing a GM intrusion about one or once or twice a session mm-hmm. per player. Right. So, so that's, so a, everybody's lot, that's gonna, a lot of intrusions. Right. But they're small. So it's sort of like, okay, you're talking to the king or you're sitting at the the ball because one of the players is a noble. So you're at a ball. You're talking to this person, you know, and you're, you know, you're sort of sweet talking to this person because you're trying to get this information. And they rolled really, uh, they're about to roll to see if they sort of get the information and, and if they're charming as they think they are. I could say, wait, before you roll, you suddenly this is a dumb example but it's one of the ones that one of my players and I talked about you you suddenly feel you have to pass gas right. and you're in the middle of talking to this beautiful other noble woman who you're trying to impress and you're trying not to uh, you know you need information from her you need her your, her help uh, so your difficulty right now the role is only you know like a, a, a two, level two difficulty it's now going to be a level three difficulty. And then you hand them the XP. And if they decline, they pay you an XP and their right. difficulty didn't go up. And if, as long as they make their roll, they can narrate it however they want. Right. Um, if they accept the XP, then I get to narrate a little bit of, okay, you accidentally do this. They still get to roll. So they still might succeed and get the information, but it was more difficult to do it. Uh-huh. And it added a little narrative blip and a little bit of more complication. It's supposed to be something that small. Mm-hmm. But when I was when I was when I think about it, it just because it's XP, yeah, I, I wanted to run it as written. So I right. I know there's a bunch of house rules I can do, and every you know, lots of people have been telling me, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? Like I could do all those things, but I want to run the game as written. I want to sure. see how it works as it was conceived by right. Monty Cook and Shauna Germain. Like I want to see how it works because I know it can work. I don't know if it can work with my group or with me, but I think it can, and I think it could be brilliant, but I'm, j- I'm not doing it right. So well, I have to redo my prep and try to figure out, okay, how can I make – I've now I've got it, so I've written a few like simple GM intrusions for each PC mm-hmm. so that I, you know, I could throw that in. Like I paid attention to what their skills are and stuff, and I can throw – like I'm trying to make it so that I give enough – GM intrusions that they now have a stack of XP, so they feel free to spend some, and they'll still have enough to do advancement. Yeah, I, I, I keep trying not to interrupt. Um, yes. <laughs> it's similar to the my problem with inspiration, in, in that I, I so seldom remember to do it, and then when I do, um, it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then, and it's not supposed to be a big deal, right? And it's hard to change that dynamic because the precedent has been set. Right. You know, the, the expectation is there. And and how to whittle that and change that with I guess maybe you know sit down and have an explicit conversation with your players right because I think that's what, where I'm at is that I'm I want to try to do this more but please remind me and 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 what have you uh, don't think of this as such a such a big ordeal whenever you get one of these things 
I actually d- I had a long conversation with with the players, and they're um, actually over email. So mm-hmm. uh, it was it, it, it was a little contentious at first because we had to work through the different conceptions or or interpretations of GM intrusions until we realized what the differences were between how we were thinking of them, and then it suddenly became clear and obvious what needed to be done. Okay. Yeah. So are, and they're and they're on board and um, did you ask them for help then well, remembering? They're 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 um, basically <laughs> what they said was just freaking house rule it and get on with it. We love the way you run games. We don't care if it's not working the way you thought it was going to work. Just the game's fun. Just, just run keep it. going. Yeah. And I, but I'm like I really want to make it work. To <laughs> I just want to see it work and I, I want to try at least one more because se- you know we have like ten hour sessions so right. I want to try like one more session to really really do these and let people start yeah. using it as an economic you know. Yeah. I agree and, with you. I, I you, you know, know I I think that's a good way to go. I think that I think that trying to stick to the rules as close as you can you know that there might be something there that we that you don't see right away and and maybe yeah. it takes time to click. Yeah, and I mean house ruling is fine, but but it's good to try it as written first. Yeah. And see how it goes before you start changing things. Yeah, a lot, yeah. lot of design work went in by a lot of really smart people. <laughs> you know, I, right. I, you know, I was saying the same thing about D and D five E with house rolling stuff, and you know, a lot of design work went in by a lot of smart people that might know a little bit more than we than we might. Well, right. I mean, yes and no. So it's I'm, worth giving it a shot. Yes and no, because I mean, they know really well good game design, but they don't necessarily know what's going to work at my table. That's correct. So, I so know. I like to give their good game design a shot first, and then right. tweak what I want. Yeah, I I, I give then, him two or three shots and then and then tweet. Yeah. See, that's the thing is, I feel like I haven't given him a fair shot. Yeah. That, that that's why I said, you know, I I I came to the conclusion, and not that I was blaming the game in the first place, but I really came to the conclusion I'm just doing this wrong. Like I, I'm I'm doing it in a way that works at my table because of the way that I've run other games at the table. But mm-hmm. the problem is, this isn't other games. This is this game, mm-hmm. and I need to. I need to really, I really want to see it work. So that was, and you know what? It might just not work with my group and that's okay. I'm, I'm also prepared to accept that, but I need to give it a fair shake first. All right. Cause I, I really, I think the system's really good. It's yeah. so easy to prep. I know Mike's on a time crunch and we blew past your time about yep, seven, sorry, mi- seven minutes ago and, and the yeah, timer sorry. was really quiet. So uh, we're going <laughs> to go ahead and move along. Uh, but before we move along to the next person, I want to mention our sponsor, OpenGamingStore.com. Have you guys checked out a- Open Gaming Store yet? Nope. All nope. right. I'll, I'll check it out right now. All right. O- OpenGamingStore.com is our new sponsor. Uh, oh, new. They've been with us for a month and a half now. Um they largely do PDF products, but they've got a, a host of, of PDF and you know physical products, and they've even got like you know baby onesies for geeks and that kind of stuff, right? Uh, the the pick that I chose for this episode is the D and D Collectors Series miniature of Strahd on a Nightmare, because I suspect we might be hearing about Strahd later. You think, I'm Mike? Not, I'm not talking about. Strahd. Oh, you're done talking about. Strahd? Okay, well. I'm done ah, with that guy. Oh well, I'm picking Strahd. Giants? Are there any giants? I'm picking Strahd on a nightmare anyway. In 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 uh, reminiscence of your former campaigns. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it's a collector set. There was only a certain number of them made. They have some available for twenty five dollars, which is not a bad price, uh, as long as you are somebody who's interested in you know painting and what have you, because it's one of those miniatures, the unpainted ones, um, which I know Mike is into these days, right? Yeah. From time go. to time. So there you go. Uh, hey, they have a Numenera one right here. They have a Numenera Jack. Ooh, cool. Nice. 
So there you go. Uh, and if you buy a certain amount of, of product from them, spend a certain amount of money, they give you a free PDF on top of whatever you bought. So not a bad deal. Go check them out at OpenGamingStore.com. Oh, hey, it's me, Fred the Pixie. Yeah, I wanted to tell you all about OpenGamingStore.com. It's a great website where you can buy all kinds of gaming PDFs and other great products, onesies for the kids. They always got these great package deals that you should check that change in every single week. So check it out, OpenGamingStore.com. It is a Pixie's best friend. I'm next. I put 15 minutes on my clock. So, uh, Sam, you missed the last time. Yes, um, I did. But they've, they've gone back to dis, dis, what it was Dasarn Valley, and in my campaign setting is the Dasarn Island, right? Um, they've gone back there. They have now um, – they encountered the, the air temple. They, they figured out that they need the uh, – the way I've con- conceived of it, they need uh, one of each of the keys – to get onto the to one of the temples, right? <clears throat> and they want to get down to the Earth Temple because this Dwarven delegation they've been trying to, to rescue since level one is is down there. They were some of them were taken down there. They've rescued some of them. Uh, so they they've got Earth, they've got air. Um, last time we chatted, or last time I chatted with Mike and David, who replaced you momentarily. Um, they were headed towards the water temple, having been in that one town with the pirate. And um, you remember that, Mike? I remember that? Yeah. Okay. So, because there's the one town, I don't remember the name of it off. The, it's a small little town, but it's kind of being overrun by this one pirate guy who's supplying stuff to um, the water temple. And so they figured out where the water temple was. And last time they were hopping on a on a river barge and heading up towards the water temple with that pirate in tow. They brought him along with as sort of. Uh, you're going to come with us and make sure that we get in the way you said we could get in because if it doesn't work out, then you know that's not going to go well for you. Uh, and then I use that as an opportunity to introduce some more factions because I realize I'm moving into the the Out of the Abyss Gauntlegrim scene where there's the council. Uh, and I'm like, oh, but like most of those factions haven't really even played a part in any of the stories yet. They don't even know who any of them are, even though I've kind of reskinned them and renamed them in the setting. Mm-hmm. So I decided – I don't know if this was original or not, but I decided that the pirate guy, the Genasi that they've captured it, was a member of the Zents. And that's why he was supplying them. It was a purely sort of mercantile um, transaction, right? Uh, he wasn't really that interested in the water cult themselves. He's just – you know, this is an opportunity to make inroads for the network. Uh, and then while they were taking him upriver to the water temple, um, another magical boat sort of – uh, scurried up behind them, and it's just the like it was a little. I, I described it as sort of this um, really fancy-looking self-propelled canoe, and this one individual standing on it, you know, standing upright with his his arm up and 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 his you know his knee bent and whatever, uh, looking all all heroic and noble. And you're thinking, you know, did did he really like ride up the whole river for days just standing in that pose, hoping to run into people? Um, <laughs> you know. Um, but it turns out he is was my way of introducing the Harpers, and then it became a, hey, that guy you've got is part of this organization, and I've kind of been hunting him, and I need you to give him to me, and I'm totally one of the good guys. But that was a way that I was able to introduce both of those factions, which is sort of something I've been trying to build in um, in the last few sessions anyway. And that went really well, and they sort of – like they're like, well, we're law enforcement, and you don't have any actual authority as a Harper, um, so we'll totally 
you know, help you out, but not right now. We were on official business sort of thing. And they, they left parted on, on friendly terms, or at least on good terms, um, even if the Harper didn't get what he wanted. They got to the water temple. I changed the water temple a bit, a bit in that I had it being overrun by another creature in the setting. There's this hive. Um, if you guys remember the hive creatures, um, they, they sort of, they're bug-like creatures. I'm using the Thrykreen stats for them most of the time. Um, and, and they've been intruding into the, the world or into the part of the world that the, the players are defending. Uh, and nobody can figure out why, and they don't have language that anybody knows of because they basically communicate telepathically. They have, share a sort of a hive mind sort of thing. Um, my uh, David Bowie-inspired automaton uh, player uh, refers to them as Americans because there's a David Bowie song that says, I'm afraid of Americans. <laughs> and, and they're from South America is, is where they're their home home is uh so so basically it was me being like i don't really want to go through the slog of dungeon crawl after dungeon crawl after dungeon crawl for all of these temples um so we're gonna shortcut it by you got there but they're in the middle of being overrun by these bug creature things and so it was a simultaneous like fighting off the hive but also trying to do some damage to the water t- uh, cult at the same time so that at the end when you have to confront the leader of the water cult maybe you've got a shot at taking him out and getting his, his holy symbol or his uh, key which is also his symbol and, and getting away, right? Um, and they basically did. They, they more or less obl- – between the hive and them, they obliterated the surface level of the water temple which of course will just slowly be uh, – what is it? River Guard Keep? which will slowly be repopulated by the, the cultists that are in the temple below later. So that happened. Now they're off to the fire. Uh, now they've gone off to the fire temple. Um, and, and Mike, you've, you ran through all this, right? Yes. Okay. So, the, so you, you understand what the, the basic setup is, right? The fire temple is there's a, an old tower on a hill and right. they're, they're building the, the wicker man sort of giant yeah. thing that, that continuously burns. Yep. And uh, and then there are these camps down below on the path, and so you're right. There's these role playing and challenging opportunities as you work your way up the path um, to the temp- to the tower, where then you work your way into the tower and confront the boss inside or whatever. Um, except they're like, wow, yeah, look at all those camps. Uh, let's just go around back, and so they they just like we're gonna skip all that, go around behind the the other side of the hill, uh, and go up the back of it. This is not the first time in the last several years I've seen a published adventure like this have, you know, here's this location on the top of a hill and all these stuff you have to go through on one side of it, but you can totally just skip it all, which they did. They completely just skipped it all, which is fine. Right. They climbed up the back. They went straight to the tower. Um, they, they confronted the, the hellhounds that were inside and, and, you know, fought off whatever guards were there and uh, are now just about ready to go into the temple. And that's sort of where we've left off. Uh, my only concern with that is that I had kind of hoped to introduce the Emerald Enclave because the whole thing with the Fire Temple, the – I don't even remember what the Burning Man, the Wicker Man thing is called. It's not the Fire Temple, but it's – um, whatever. I don't remember. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I had planned on – the whole thing is that they're doing this this massive ritual and they're bringing in druids from all over the, the land saying, hey, we're doing this this massive druidic ritual and, you know, come and help us sort of stuff. Uh, and then they're hoping to, you know, recruit people into the fire cult and whatever. But all these druids are there and I was hoping to use that as an opportunity to introduce some people who weren't, weren't necessarily allied with the fire cult but were just kind of there – some druids that were there to be curious and were members of the Emerald Enclave, which would then give me an opportunity to introduce that last faction. 
Um, so I, it looks like I may miss out on that opportunity to introduce the the Emerald Enclave faction at this point, which could be fine. Maybe this is just a random faction that shows up at the council that you've never met before, and that's your first experience with it. Um, that could, could be okay. Um, or maybe there'll be some other opportunity I can come up with without over-druiding them and making it um, you know, unnatural. And then from there, it's off to the uh, the Earth Temple, um, the actual Earth Earth Temple. Um, I've had them. I've had the the Lich. Um, I, I remember us talking extensively about the Lich. One of those sessions that we talked, Mike. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. And that Lich has become a continual uh, NPC in the story. Um, they tried to work out uh, a, a diplomatic arrangement between the Lich and the knights that he was kind of fighting with, the knights that were named after his brother, and he wants the body of his brother back. Um, and the next time they visited, um, the diplomatic relations clearly did not work out very well because they, they approached the Earth the Earth Temple or the Sacred Stone Monastery and they found the heads of the knights on pikes outside of the temple, like the Lich's way of saying, yeah, don't mess with me. Um, so this time it was, fi- it was a subtle message. Yeah. Well. <laughs> yeah. But he still has this deal and this arrangement with the party and, and as long as they're like – not going to come after him for doing that. They're, I mean, and they've gone through all kinds of mental gymnastics, moral gymnastics to justify as law enforcement letting this happen. But, but so far, that's what they're doing. Um, and then they wonder why they have a reputation on the island. But whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, my plan is that when they arrive at the Earth Temple this time, or uh, I keep saying the temple, it's the Sacred Stone Monastery above the Earth Temple. But now they're going to finally go back so they can go into the temple to, to rescue the, the people and whatever. Um, my plan is that one of the giant uh, grub-like bu- uh, hive creature uh, transport ve- vehicles, in quotes, because it's a living sort of creature that they use for getting across oceans and traveling and whatever, and then they, they, they like hide inside the, the scales of the thing. Uh, there's going to be one of those um, like guided and hollowed out in front of the temple when they arrive. That hmm. indicating that the hive has uh, recently attacked there as well, and the lich has fought them off. Um, because what they don't know, and what the world doesn't know, is that the idea behind these hive creatures is that they're not—they're um, not actually the bad guys. Like they were—they were conceived of by the party. I had the players like help build the world, and they—they they thought of these creatures. Uh, they conceived of them as sort of being a big villain. And I think I'm going to twist it on its head a little bit and say they're not really villains. They're, they're lawful neutral, neutral creature, creatures that are seeking out um, the sort of deep chaotic scars in the world and, and to want to you know get rid of them or heal them or whatever, right? They're, they're, they're driven by order and law and there's these deep chaotic scars in the world that are caused by the cataclysmic event that made the world change. Uh, and I've got sort of a backstory behind that. Um, but so the idea is that they're now they're starting to attack the temples because they're a source of chaos in the world, right? They're they're working towards the bringing about the the elemental princes of evil, and that's that's going to bring more chaos into the world, whatever. So I'm trying to start giving some hints that these are not just random encounters with the bug creatures, but that there's some sort of theme or storyline behind them as well, uh, and the reason why they're portrayed as bad guys is because they keep intruding on our territory and killing our people and have and, and largely that comes down to there's no way for them to communicate with each other it's kind of like um uh what's that orson scott card uh, ender's game mm-hmm. 
if you're familiar with Ender's Game, right, uh, by the end of it, spoiler alert, you you get to the point where the main character of Ender sort of realizes, oh, this alien invasion that we fought off was never really uh, intended to be an invasion. It was just a species of people who had no way of conceiving right. as us as sentient creatures. Like shaking hands. Right. Right. So that's kind of my, my plan with these these hive creatures is that they're actually going after that. Um, so that's all of that. Uh, and then, Mike, you've run the, the Earth Temple. And last time when I was going to Sacred Stone, I asked you, was there any pointers you would give? Do you have any any thoughts off the top of your head about the Earth Temple before they had dive in? Because I barely had a chance to reread it. The Earth Temple. No, it's not, it's all monks kind of. Uh, the Sacred Stone was all monks. I don't know that it's all that, monks down below. Maybe it is. I don't know. Oh yeah, sorry. The earth. Yeah, I'm sorry. I I I kind of think of the whole thing together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. I don't know that I actually ran the Earth Temple. So the way I ran it is they really only went down into one place. Yeah. You know they didn't go to all of them. So yeah, I, mine, I never actually. And mine might only go. Them. Mine might only go down into one place too. But I, I think it's going to be the Earth Temple. I've also yeah, yeah, I've also given mine myself. Was, mine was air. I've given myself this extra problem, I guess, um, in that <laughs> I I introduced a a ghost character. Um, that has attached itself to one of the PCs and now like follows them along. I was inspired by a moment from um, there's a podcast called Harmontown with Dan Harmon, and they play a little bit of D and D at the end of every episode. And their DM introduced this sort of child, you know, this weird child character in the middle of the wilderness or whatever that gave them a shortcut and then they slowly discovered that, oh, that child's actually a ghost. And I'm like, hey, that's really cute and cool and adds this weird quirky thing and I'm going to use that sometime when I've got the Earth Temple, like, attacking them. It was, you know, the the Earth Temple sent Ankegs after them. It was one of the planned encounters for them to retaliate. Uh, and I just sort of had this this ghost, little Baskins, follow them up, and he's got a, Br- a British accent and whatever, and and he tries to be helpful, and and but he won't, but he won't go away. And I I always like, like I don't want to overrun the players with this guy, this kid constantly talking at them, um, but the idea is that that he was sat, he was taken from his home and then sacrificed by the Earth Temple. And, you know, the soul has attached itself to, to one of the players who's from the same place, um, you know, because it's familiar and whatever. And, and it will follow you around until, until you uh, lay, its, you know, lay its body to rest or whatever. Take Once him back can... to Hammerfest? Yeah, that sort of thing. <laughs> um, so, so and, and, and it's been kind of fun, except I don't like none of the PCs actually like little Baskins. Like I thought he was adorable. <laughs> I think the players are having fun with him and they even bring him up every now and then. They're like, oh, what does he think? Or what's he doing or whatever. Right. Um, Cause he's of the, of, of all of them, they're getting ready to go into the earth temple and he, he's been there, right? He was a ghost there haunting the area for a while until he followed the Ankhags up and found the party. Um, so, so it's, it's an interesting sort of balance of how do I do this character without making the character, annoying to the players in the same way that the character is clearly annoying to the PCs, especially when I intended him for him to be cute and adorable. So, so that's where I'm at. Cool. With 10 seconds to spare. So what do you want to know in 10 seconds? I don't know. All Hmm. right. Well, good. There's my time. I turned the volume up this time. I, I, I do have one quick question. Yes. Uh, do you feel like so because you, you started with this super wide three three campaign adventure mm-hmm. path? 
right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or do you find that they are leaning into into one of them more than the others, and that you are trying to steer them out of it, no. or are you kind of happy to dive deep? Like you've, you've you've spent a fair bit of time in the elemental evil stuff. Well, so we started uh, spending a lot of time in the elemental evil stuff, and then we spent a whole bunch of time in the out of the abyss stuff. And out of the abyss, right? And and mm-hmm. now we're back to doing elemental evil stuff. Gotcha. But they know they're on a time crunch because they have to get the dwarven delegation from uh, elemental evil because that dwarven delegation needs to be at the council of Gontelgrim that's part of out of the abyss. Right. So now they're on a time crunch. The council has been called. They've got like, you know, a month or three weeks or whatever to get down there and find these guys and get them out. Um, So, so no, it's actually working pretty well. And, and actually I've got, so I've got the three published storylines and then I've got my own sort of extra fourth storyline. That's the, the hive creatures. And then these automatons that one of the players is, is one of the, the, uh, gear forged that I ripped out of a kobold press. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so I, what I do for my prep in each game session is I set up a table with four lines in it, one for each storyline. And it's like, okay, how is this storyline going to make an appearance in each session? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it doesn't have to be the major thrust of the story, but every single storyline has a moment of just a reminder that, oh, yeah, this is a thing that's going on in the world too. Uh, mm-hmm. And so when they transition from one into the other, it seems to typically go pretty smoothly. As, and it's been really easy for me to blend sort of out of the abyss and, and – um, an elemental evil because of that dwarven situation, you know, um, because I just made Eldath from out of the abyss, one of the dwarven delegation, one of the members from the dwarven delegation that they were trying to rescue from uh, elemental evil. So, so suddenly they had a reason to go after her in out of the abyss. Right. You know what, you know what else that does too, when you, when you sort of make sure that you remind them or bring up something every time, it makes time seem like it's going by. Right. Cause like for for my game, like the the sort of three main things that are going on, they're happening at a different pace, and knowing that the the ones that aren't sort of at the forefront in each set, you know, in one session one of them is in the forefront, and the other two are kind of in the background. But because I bring in a little bit of it, it makes them feel like time is passing. Mm-hmm. So when there is a time crunch, it makes it that much more urgent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the only the only tricky part of it or the only thing that maybe isn't going super smooth with it is that I'm at a point with the Rod of Seven Parts storyline um, that until they actually are going after another part of the Rod which I already know where it is and it's kind of in the Gontelgrim area so I suspect when they head out to that council that'll be when that gets taken care of um, but until that happens there's really not much to go on to, or to happen there except that um you know, these random encounters with these spider fiends keep popping up. Mm. And, and I've started using – and there's a like a set in the in the module. There's a whole set of like these are some other sidetracks or random encounters because it's not intended to be a sort of solid adventure. It's sort of a – this kind of pops into your campaign here and there at these different levels. Um, mm-hmm. But in the meantime, that stretch in, in the middle is, OK, but how do I keep reminding them that this is a thing? Well, the whole point of the spider fiends is the the queen of chaos is sending them after people who own parts of the rod, and they have two parts of the rod. So the queen is, of course, sending these spider fiends after them. I can't not send the spider fiends um, because that's kind of a big deal in, in what's going on. But they have no right. idea. For, at this point, they they just think it's random encounters, and they've started to figure out that um, they're using the rod is attracting the spider fiends. Hmm. Um, now, I think. They think that the use of one piece of the rod 
always attract spider fiends because they've only used it once and the spider fiends showed up in that encounter. And, I, and then I realized, oh crap, I may have just completely misled them <laughs> because it's both of them have been attracting it and it's either at a, at a story point that I think it needs it or a, a kind of a lull in the session where I want to pick things up and suddenly a portal opens and, and here comes spider fiends or, or whatever. And that's what happened was I was waiting, you know, this encounter was wrapping up and I was waiting for them to use the rod and once they did, I'm like, aha, there's my chance. <laughs> and so they use the part now and it's the only time they've ever used that that part of the rod so now it's like oh great now they think every time they use that part of the rod it's going to summon the spider, spider fiends so they may never use it again who knows hmm. so anyway yeah it's all it's all flowing and blending rather well so far um, I mean we we lost the we started with one of the storylines being uh, Freeport um, mm-hmm. as well and we've completely lost that thread uh, and we lost that early on um, and I replaced it with the original storyline um, which they seem to be more interested anyway. So um, that worked out well. And it was that was largely a problem of geography. Freeport, I just put it too far away in the world from where they were. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they didn't mm-hmm. want to leave the other storylines in order to, to chase after that. So that's where it is. And I'm over time cool. too. So uh, we're going uh, to move on to Mike in a moment. But first I want to let people know or remind people that we have a Patreon available if you want to support us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash the tome. Is it the tome? Is it the tome show? I should look that up. Um, <laughs> but I wanted to say thanks uh, to those of uh, those people who are supporting us. And I need to thank Doug Palmer and Mark for supporting us at the $5 a month level each. Um, they get a shout out every month. And this is the episode where I always remember to do that. So there you go. Thank you to it's, Doug Palmer and Mark. It's patreon.com slash the tome show. The tome show. Thank you. I can never remember which ones I got just the tome or had to do tome show or just decided to do tome show or whatever. So the tome show. There you go. So go over to patreon.com slash the tome show and support us there. Or you can support us by using our affiliate links uh, from uh, DMs Guild or Amazon, which you can get to by going to thetomeshow.com. Mike. Yo. 15 minutes on the clock. Go. Uh, All right. So I finished off my two Curse of Strahd games. Uh, in both cases, uh, they kind of forgot about Irina. I lied. I'm going to talk about Strata a little uh-huh. bit. Um, <laughs> in both cases, uh, the both groups kind of ignored Irina. She got captured by Strahd, and in in different ways, Strahd was trying to turn her into an uber vampire, one that's even stronger than he is, and one that, and he believes, will rule over Barovia with a far fairer hand than he did. Uh, he kind of accepted once he saw the the, the power that the characters had. He said, "They're going to come and kill me anyway. But if I can, you know, if I can pass, you know, my power to her and put her in charge, you know, they'll let her live, and um, you know, she'll rule over the lands, and she'll be better than I was. She'll be she'll be much less of a dick than I was. And in both cases, the party killed her anyway. Hmm. Um, which you know, it's a hard sell to keep the vampire queen alive." I get. But even though like it's like, oh, she might really be nice and she'll be lawful and she'll come up with an agreement with the Order of the Silver Dragon so that, you know, people aren't murdered all the time. And they didn't do it anyway. I did run a Halloween game, however, using the Cobalt uh, uh, Press adventure called um, The Blood Vaults of Sister uh, Alcava, uh, which is a fantastic name for an adventure and a fantastic <laughs> adventure. Uh, and I said it two hundred, or I said it a hundred years after the fall of Strahd in Barovia, in which Irina, as the Red Queen, survives, 
and she becomes the new ruler of, Bar- of over Barovia, and she uh, demands a tribute. One of the parts of the alliance that she's had with the knights is that there is a tribute where thirty citizens go to uh, a place near the castle uh, and are bled, and then are returned, and everything's fine. No one dies, and the vampires get to feed. And she's—it's only like her and a handful, right? It's not a lot of vampires. And the adventure is one of her priestesses goes a little crazy and starts taking a lot more blood than she ought to. Starts killing folk. Um, so a really fun side adventure, but I really enjoyed sort of having like what happens in Barovia a hundred years later mm-hmm. if if Irina survived. Um, anyway, now I have switched over to Storm King's Thunder. I've been looking forward to this for some time uh, since since reading it really, and both groups have switched over. And I've done a couple of interesting things uh, to start. One is I've, I've I've kind of had my first session zeros. I never really did session zeros, and I did session zeros with both groups where we just spent one session just kind of bsing about what we wanted and making characters and talking about our backgrounds and you know connecting them and um, uh, one. One thing I added was uh, I, I recommended that they choose a single faction, that rather than being a mix of Harpers and Elder, Emerald Enclave and Lords Alliance, that they all pick one, and that that will sort of be a, a theme for them for that campaign. And they can pick whichever one they want, but that way they'll be like sort of a contact and a primary you know, sort of quest network uh, that I can overlay on top of Storm King's Thunder. And one group picked Harpers, uh, but a couple of the players really wanted to be Lords Alliance, so it's Harpers and Lords Alliance, uh, but with a recognition that the Harpers are kind of the ones running the show, and the Lords Alliance people, you know, it's a, that's a secondary connection. Uh, and the other one all picked Zinterim. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, that was my reaction. And I was like, oh my <laughs> god, how am I going to do this? Like, you know, A, I don't like evil groups. I'm not like Sam. You know, I don't want to run evil parties. So... I don't uh, like it, so don't say that's like me. <laughs> well, you, well, you did it. I did so, it. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so I was I, begged. I, yeah. yeah. Okay. Right. Well, and I, so I made I made some I made some core rules. I said you can do what you want, but no murdering and raping and pillaging, and no. I mean, um, when, no when, when they're part of the Zinterim, I mean, there's an organization there that that, that mitigates the evilness. But the Zinterim. Yeah, because one of the problems with with an evil campaign is that inevitably the the players will turn on each other and you yeah, know, right. say screw right. you. But there's a reason within the organization not to do that. There's a hierarchy and an order. Right, right. So, um, uh, uh, so I, I kind of just laid out some basic rules. Like you're not allowed to screw other PCs, and you're not allowed, you know, not allowed to just turn into homicidal maniacs. And they all are like, yeah, we don't want to do that anyway. But, you know, it means that money can have a much bigger motivator for them. And that's kind of mm-hmm. power grabs and everything else. Mm-hmm. And I thought that'd be really fun. So for the session zero, what was cool is like while we were having the conversation, we we're doing a lot of yes and sort of improv st- stuff. And it kind of came out that one of the characters is sort of the prime contact between the Zinterim and the group. And uh, I brought in Gemma Gleamsilver, the Zinterim from... Um, mm the horde of the dragon queen yeah and she was like his primary contact and she said i need you to get a group together we've got some stuff we're gonna do and she she, does she also make an appearance in out of the abyss does she i think she might make an appearance in the the council oh that might be i never really got that far just a cameo yeah yeah i think you're right i think you're right um, but we never got that far in this one, so they don't know her. But it's kind of neat. They're like, oh, Gemma Gleamsover, I remember her. Uh-huh. You know, they, the player remembers her, but the characters don't. So the fun part was I did this sort of uh, seven samurai, how the characters got together sort of thing. The, but the interesting thing was all of it was through deception. 
So mm-hmm. like one of the characters was a circus performer who got kidnapped and she's on this boat being dragged there by this big tattooed ugly fella. And then the character who was the um, uh, the Zinterim contact was told by Gemma Gleamsilver, hey, this guy's going to get off of this boat in Baldur's Gate. He's going to be dragging this little waif girl with with her with him. Uh, she's your going to be part of your group. But you have to go over and you have to slug that guy in the face as hard as you can and and free her. And by the way, it's OK because he's in on it. Right. <laughs> so then he walks over with his brass knuckles and he hits the guy and he misses. And the guy's like looking at him, <laughs> waiting for him to hit again. And he hits him the second time. And she can't figure out what's going on. The players, of course, knew what was going on. But the character didn't. Right. Uh-huh. So then he res- quote unquote, rescues her from this big thug. And now she's kind of indebted to him. Right. And so he started doing that with that. That kind of became the theme about how he got the other party members together is that, you know, two of them were given false information about a book that was at a bookshop. They went there. They knew that one of the characters was going to get all surly and pissed off. The, co- the, the, the flaming fist mercenaries were right there on the spot to arrest him. They got arrested. He had to bribe the mercenaries to give him over to them. All of this happened in like 10 minutes. And then he suddenly rescued these people from being arrested and killed by, you know. <laughs> Flaming fist. So the idea is like he's building this interim team, but all of them are doing it by deception. You know, they're all being deceived as part of the group. But the players are in on it and they're all they all think it's fun. So so that was kind of a fun and, and that's you know, that was our session zero. We don't even know. They're gonna go to a bar in Baldur's Gate <laughs> and that's where things are gonna start. Okay. Um the other group was Harper's and, and Emerald Enclave, and that was much more straightforward. They met with Leos and Erlanthar. You can get the mm-hmm. theme. I put all the guys from you know, but again, the players knew him real well, so that was kind of fun. He meets them in Daggerford and says, "Hey, you know, I've got a agent, a, a friend, another Harper friend that I haven't heard from, who's in Nightstone, and I'd like to find out what's going on." So he sent them to Nightstone. They got in all kinds of, you know, ballyhoo at Nightstone. A lot of fun with the Zinterim in Nightstone. Like, like the Zinterim want to take over the town, and the party doesn't really want to do it. But on the other hand, they're not ready to hold them off. You know, so there's like all this crazy negotiation. They end up kind of giving up and saying, yeah, well, if the Zint want Nightstone and the people in Nightstone are not going to fight it too hard, then I guess that's fine. Um, the problem is the end of the Nightstone section, the quests that the PCs can get just suck. Mm. And like the guy's like, hey, what, during the giant attack, my neighbor was killed and he has a brother that, that lives in Bryn Shander. Could you go talk to him and tell him that his brother died? And they look at the map and they're like, Bryn Shander's 1,500 miles away. Yeah. On the other side of the spine of the world. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. We're, we're going to get killed trying to get there to tell him that his brother's dead. Right. No, I, so, I remember looking at those and thinking, well, that's a really neat concept. But some of those, are like, I just I just won't run them because that's going to be a pain. Yeah, well, so I was tired this week and I, I didn't do even as much prep as I would like. I thought they were mm. going to spend more time in the Dripping Caves and they walked right in. You know, killed some dudes, got the prisoners, got out without ever even seeing the goblins that are there. Mm-hmm. And um, so then I, I was like, next thing you know, the quest's over, right? <laughs> like, they, they're, it's time to find <laughs> them. So I'm basically reading it right out of the book. And while it's coming out of my mouth, I'm like, man, this sucks. <laughs> so I, th- I think I'm going to retcon it that, you know, and I've got to figure out sort of other quests that could potentially take them to Tribor or Green uh, Golden Fields or Brin- I guess Bryn Chander, but I don't think anything's going to take them there. And I don't know, really know that I want them at level three. Tracing. Well, I mean, I guess <laughs> sending them to Bryn Chander to deliver the message is fine if that's the place where you're doing the dragon attack, right? But The dragon attack. Oh, the, I'm sorry, the giant attack. 
Yeah, I don't. Well, I'm, I'm, you know, the giant attack is going to happen wherever they happen to go. Wherever they happen to go. So, the, yeah, and this is one where I'm, I'm running the adventure differently, um, and I'm trying to stay, you know, like Sam was talking about, I'm trying to stay true to the way that adventure was written, uh-huh. which is, you know, it's not like the dungeon world. All of the fronts are moving at once. Like all of the giant attacks are happening all simultaneously, and the party can never stay on top of it. I want uh-huh. it to be relaxed, where. You know, all of those cities are going to be fine until the attention of the PCs go on them, and then it <laughs> happen. Which so, is not- so. What you're saying is, if the players just decide to to back off and go home, the rest of the world will be safe. Yeah. As long as the players <laughs> never show up, nobody ever right. gets attacked. As long as they never right, if they just go to Daggerford, everything. <laughs> Right. No, no giants will attack anyway. You know, I have some advice for you. Tell them that at the end of the campaign, they'll be so happy. Yeah, right. Like, you know, <laughs> you you know just, about like, five sessions ago, if you'd just gone to Daggerford, none of it. this would have They love yeah. it when I share that stuff. Like, oh, yeah. by the way, you never did get that wand of the, the staff of power that was hidden in that crypt. Yeah, yeah. You didn't um, look hard enough. <laughs> yeah, too bad. Um, yeah, so so one thing I also want to do, because the adventure is so weird, I'm going to treat it much more like an open campaign. Again, I think it's kind of designed that way. And I want to wrap a couple of other adventures on it. So I already sat down with, like, a, okay, what are the other factions? And I love Volo's Guide to Monsters, so I'm going to put some gnolls in, because I always love gnolls. I think gnolls are, like, my favorite humanoid. Uh, I'm not that into gnolls. Okay. Oh, I just love them. They're, they're, the fact that they're kind of, like, tied to demons and they're different than orcs and goblins. See, I'm much more into hobgoblins with their strict yeah, the, the, militant the militant stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I like gnolls because I like Yinogu. Yeah, right. So, so. It's just a misunderstood, demonically inspired <laughs> bad guy, you know. Yeah. So the interesting thing, so one of the one of the layers I'm going to put on is the second half of Out of the Abyss, which I think is going to fill up. So I'm probably going to run this one to twenty instead of just one to whatever. Mm. And uh, I think I'm going to take parts of the second half of Out of the Abyss and feed it in there, so that like once mm. they're level ten ish, they start to go down and have to go fight the demon princes that are awakened down in the Underdark. And y- Yinagu could be one of them, right? Like, and they could deal with gnolls who know that Yinagu's around and go down there and have to deal with the whole thing. So that could be a fun sidetrack. The other one I'm thinking of doing is one. That <laughs> Go take on these demon lords as a sidetrack. Yeah. Well, <laughs> okay. Right. Fun one. <laughs> Hell, you know, what else are you going to do at level ten to twenty? Right. Fight <laughs> the demon lords and have it like actually tied to the abyss. So like you know they're 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 spending half their time in the underdark and half their time in the abyss. So so um, are you going to find some way to connect those stories, or is it just these two different things happening simultaneously? I have no idea. Yeah, okay. I have no idea what I'm. I mean, I could see, a, a, and it's so far from now. That's like six months away. Yeah, so, I mean, but yeah. you could, you could, I, I could imagine an element where the same cosmic event that destroyed the ordering also unleashed the demon lords, and and so there's. I think so, but again, like I, I, I don't want any apocalypse. Right, yeah, yeah. like I don't want I don't want anything that's going well, on that's wrecking everything. So if they got, go down there, you got demon lords running around in the underdark. That, that, <laughs> but no, because nothing's running around in the underdark right now. <laughs> Not until they get right? there. Until they get there, and then the demon lords will be free. Yeah, but either so, way, if you're talking about demon lords and uh, run, running around, then there's there's an inherent sort of apocalyptic bent to that. Yeah, but but that won't you know it might not even be happening yet. Yeah, I think I'll say stuff like weird shits going on in the underdark, but I don't know you know the the. Like, there's no point in them getting involved until they're in their teens. You like how Mike also self-censors himself? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't tell. So um, <laughs> the other theme I was thinking of throwing, because I really don't have any, like, good hook or draw, is I think I'm going to throw the Rod of Seven Parts in this. You know, oh. and I know you've, you've had your whole adventure wired around that. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I don't know anything about it. I've read little bits here and there. It's obvious that there's not a whole lot about it. Really, like there isn't a fifth edition rod of seven parts, is there? Not that I know of. No, I'm I'm converting yeah. it all from second. 
Yes, I think I'm going to just make one up and come Uh up with a bunch of powers. And the idea is maybe some of the giant factions are going after it. Uh, and then other groups like, you know, there, there could be all sorts of other groups that are going. And that to me is sort of like I can spread those things all over the Sword Coast and probably mm-hmm. have a couple in the Outer Plains. Uh, and, one, one of the parts is actually the third part is in the hands of a fire giant. Yeah. Oh, in the in, in the actual adventure. Yeah. Yeah. So perfect. Right. So I can have all the other ones like the cloud. I think the cloud giant like isn't isn't part of I don't know if it's it's canon, but the cloud giant like the whole th- idea that the Nightstone is missing, but it never comes back up in the adventure, you know, but it was part of the acquisitions incorporated series. So I'm going to throw that in and say the cloud giants took the Nightstone because inside the Nightstone was the rod of sky, you know, and, or whatever the hell I'm going to call it. And, you know, they can now go to the cloud giants and get it. And so that can be sort of like a hunt for the rod of seven parts and Uh then hunt, hunt for clues that tells them about where the other parts are. Right. So, you know, it might be that they have to get three things from the Utgard barbarians who would that will then give them an item that will then tell them where one of the parts is. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I can I can multiply that quest out significantly. But now there's better reason than, hey, go talk to that person about how his brother didn't do so well against the giant rats. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm probably going to start putting that plot thread over the top of everything uh, right away. The other fun bit, and particularly with this interim group uh, that I want to handle, is... Um, I want to have factions of Zinterim. Like, if the Zinterims are like the mob, I want to have sort of the five families. And, you know, some of the families are... are... Why why is it so loud when I'm going? I didn't hear it. (laughs) It was the same volume for me. 45 minutes, you guys. Went on and on and on. No harm at all. And now I'm like... No, you go ahead. We we both went way over. You're the one on the time crunch tonight, so you can go as long as you want. I gotta go. So, um... I want to I want to have like Zinterim factions, and I I love this idea that like there's all these sort of hands that are involved in the Zinterim that even like ma- members of the Zinterim don't know are there. So, mm-hmm. for example, uh, in my Sunday group where they are Zinterim, their contact Gemma Gleamsilver says you got to go to Nightstone, and by the way, I want you to see what you know. I want you to kind of recon the place out, see what's going on, and see if it'd be a good staging house for the Zen. And then they get there, and then this other group of Seven Snakes shows up. They're also Zen. They're like, wait a minute, we were sent here. You know, but we don't work for Gemma Gleam Silver. We work for this other group. Mm-hmm. And and then there it's like, well, now what do we do? Do we murder these other Zents? Do we, you know, do we try to ally with them? How do we convince them to take a hike so we can take this place? Because, you know, it's a different boss. And then the reality is it was one person that convinced both Gemma Gleam Silver and somebody else to send two groups. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because they really nice. want it. And then who the hell is that? And that's, I think I'm going to keep that. Because that person doesn't care about the competition as long as somebody right. walks away. He doesn't away care as long as one group does it. But yeah. it's going to be yeah. this faceless entity that like none of the groups see regularly. And I think I know who it is. I think it's that beholder jackass that lives in Waterdeep. Xanathar? Or <laughs> the, the Xanathar? The Xanathar, yeah. yeah. I, think that I, mean, be... I mean, you could all, if you want to go classic lore, there's there's also, you know, original ruler r- leaders of the Zinterim that Oh yeah, that, that, I mean Manshun is still in the world uh, by Yeah, canon. I, I I think yeah, so he might be like the late game part, uh-huh. right? I actually yeah, my my very first D&D campaign was a game against Manshun and he killed himself by breaking a staff of the Magi over his knee. Oh yeah. Which is pretty badass for uh-huh. a first campaign. So, um yeah, I, I could definitely add stuff like that and sort of the history of the old Zinterim. And I just love the idea that the Zinterim themselves are like 30 factions and a lot of them are still assholes. Mm-hmm. And like we have our nice Zinterim who are just there to sort of make the world, you know, a little stronger and, by the way, get a lot of money and a lot of power. Mm-hmm. And there's other ones who are like a bunch of murderous dicks. Yeah. Uh, they, <laughs> they, they, uh, again, uh, in the official lore, the um, 
They did that uh, during third slash fourth edition with the Red Wizards of Thay. Um, mm-hmm. Third edition, the Red Wizards are suddenly like, you know what? Never mind this whole turn the entire planet into an undead horde thing. Let's uh, <laughs> let's instead become merchants and set up these these enclaves outside of major cities and start selling magic and stuff. Right. Um, you know, and they were always sort of we don't trust them; they're sinister. But hey, cheap magic, so I guess we won't turn them away, sort of thing. Right. Um, you know, and then fourth edition comes along and Zaztam takes over the 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 whole place again and you know puts them all in, in order and says all right none of this merchant stuff anymore we're, we're the big evil wizard empire but there right. were there's clearly these different factions de- designed as part of of that organization and they do you know sometimes the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing right right yeah so that's where things are all right i gotta run you gotta run so we will go ahead and wrap things up here uh we've talked for over an hour so that's a long episode anyway uh, so, uh, thanks you all for listening. Thanks for supporting our sponsors, OpenGamingStore.com, as well as using our affiliate links or hopping over to Patreon.com slash The Tome Show and supporting us there. I guess that's it, guys. Uh, and say goodnight, guys. Goodnight. Night, guys. <laughs>